Good morning. Such a blessing to have you with us this morning. We know we have a lot of visitors and we're thankful that you're here. And you have come in on a series that we're doing that's going throughout the whole year, taking one word each week. Our family here is going through a devotional book that takes that one word and uh, studies it uh, every day of the week, and then it culminates on me preaching about it on Sunday. And so the word today is shame, and I want to start this morning with just a little game, and it's an easy game. Uh, you don't really have to do much to participate. I'm going to put some statements on the screen here that represent some guilty pleasures that probably all of us have, and I just want you to answer in your own mind or in your own heart. I won't ask you to raise your hand. The question or the answer, shame or no shame, all right? Easy enough. Here they are. First of all, I take things from hotel rooms. Shame or no shame? Secondly, I drink out of the milk carton and then put it back in the fridge. Do you feel shame about that? Third, I re-gift things. If you know anything about re-gifting, that means you take a gift that you've been given, you don't use it, you keep it wrapped up and you give it to somebody else. Do you feel shame about that? This one you should be very ashamed of. Nobody should think Hot Pockets are delicious, all right? And then finally, I set the cruise control to seven miles per hour over the speed limit. You feel shame about that, if you do it, of course. If these statements do nothing else, they prove that we as human beings have issues, all of us. Some have issues much greater than the things that we just kind of humorously looked at. There are things in our lives that continually bring us down. There is shame that we deal with from past decisions or a past maybe lifestyle that we just have trouble getting over. We are a church of exes. Ex-cheaters, ex-liars, ex-convicts maybe, ex-drug abusers, ex-alcoholics, whatever it may be. We are a church of of exes, and I'm okay with that, and I hope you are too, because I don't want to be a part of a church that, that doesn't let you have a past, because we all have a past, don't we? All of us. Yes, we would like for church to be for the saints who have it all together and who are dressed up. That's what we think a lot of times of church, and many people feel like they're not, they're not welcomed at church because it is a place for all those who have it all together. But you know as well as I do, when you look through the New Testament and you see Paul writing to the various churches, those churches didn't have it all figured out. They were full of messed up people. Yes, we have people every Sunday who come in here in a suit and a smile, or they slap on a dress and some makeup, and they say everything's all right, but underneath it's not. Underneath the facade, they are just as broken as anyone. They are dealing with messes in their lives. And this should be the one place where they feel like they can come and feel comfortable with having a past. This should be the one place they should feel like they could come and get help when they need it. This is not a place for the dressed up. This is a place for the messed up. And it's time that we understood that when it comes to church. So many people are living with a burden of shame, and they feel like they can't get help where they need it most. And this is nothing new, because you know as well as I do, it started in the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3 reads like this. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Have you ever wanted to run and hide from God? You know, Adam and Eve picked the wrong item off the menu. And it cost them dearly. And they reacted like so many people do today. They ran and they hid from the presence of God. I want you to notice something interesting in this passage. I want you to notice that it says that they recognize their own nakedness. For the first time, they recognize their own nakedness. Now, I don't want to be crude this morning, but what does that mean? Even a blind person knows when they're naked. So what does that mean? You know, children are notorious for running around the house naked when they're little, right? Because they don't know any different. In their mind, there's no different from your hands that can be exposed or your face that can be exposed and those parts of the body that should not be exposed. To them, there's no difference. There's an innocence there, right? Adam and Eve could walk through the Garden of Eden with the innocence of a child because to them, at least in the beginning, there was no difference from the hands and the, the feet or the face to the parts of the body that God said to use to be fruitful and multiply. There was no difference. But finally, after their sin, they recognized for the first time the gravity of the situation. Their eyes were open to the fact that they had sinned against a holy God. And there was fear, but there was also what? There was also shame. They had to come face to face with the encounter of what sin does to a person. Feeling the shame and the regret, their eyes were opened to that. Adam and Eve responded like many of us do, they ran. And then they blamed, didn't they? When they found out they couldn't run anymore, then they started blaming. Eve, of course, blamed the devil. He said, she said, the devil made me do it. And, and Adam, of course, blamed the woman, he even blamed God in the process, right? This woman that you gave me. In other words, if you hadn't given me this woman, we'd never be in this mess. It's just a, a, a common coping mechanism that we have in our society, right? We shift the blame. We point the finger somewhere else so that we don't have to come face to face with the guilt and the shame. I think there are people that come into our churches every Sunday morning, every Sunday evening. I think there are people right here in our community that are struggling mightily with shame. There are people who are burdened and weighed down by shame. Perhaps they feel as though God would never forgive them for all the wrong that they've done. Maybe they feel like that they, they have done too much wrong and they have gone so far away from God that they could never return. And so they run and hide from God. It's a, it's a common thing that ministers see within the church is that when people need God the most is when they are as distant as ever from Him. When we need God the most is when we run away. And we don't want to confront him or our sin. I want you to notice something here, though, in this passage. God searched for Adam and Eve. Yes, there would be consequences for their sin. Yes, they would be exiled from paradise. But did you notice that God sought them out? Why would he do that? Why would he search for them after they sinned? Because he wasn't done with them. And he's not done with you either. God still had a plan for Adam and Eve. And he still has a plan for us as well. 
Listen to me, folks, you've heard me say this a lot this year, but the entire Bible is a story of God seeking to bring his people back. Seeking to restore what was lost in Eden. The Bible begins in a garden and ends that way, too. And in between, this is a story of redemption. The entire thread that runs throughout the scriptures is that of redemption. It's God buying back the people who have been sold into a slavery of sin. Though you have a past, you also have a future because Jesus came to provide it. How many of you are familiar with uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's classic, The Scarlet Letter? You had to, if you ever read that book, whether willingly or unwillingly, some of us had to unwillingly read in, in, in high school, right? If you've read that story, you know it's about Hester Prynne, a, a young lady who has a, has a child because of an illicit relationship, an affair with another man. And because adultery was illegal at this time, Hester is exposed to mocking and ridicule and persecution, and she's also made to stand on a scaffold for three hours and face public humiliation. She's also required to wear a scarlet A on her dress for the rest of her life, and that A represents adulteress. The rest of the story is about the father of that child that seemed to get away with it. I mean, Hester refused to out the, 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 ch uh, the child's father, and, and the father didn't step forward and claim responsibility. And so things seem like they're going well for the father. I mean, he got off scot-free. He can live a life uh, without any kind of consequences. But what we learn as the story goes on is that he is dealing with, or has dealt with, a great deal of shame and guilt in his life, to the point that he even took a knife and carved an A in his own chest. And I don't want to run the story for you if you hadn't read it, but it turns out that the shame and guilt would be the cause of this man losing his life. I'm afraid that there are too many folks in this world, in this community, in fact, in this church, that have allowed shame to get the best of them. Have you inducted yourself in the hall of shame? So many people have. So many people have been burdened and weighed down and are dying at the hands of shame. Too many Christians are being defeated by shame. The major theme of their life is shame. And maybe you've faced public humiliation and ridicule. Maybe you've suffered in silence. Either way, it is not God's intention for a person to be conquered by shame. God's intention is redemption. I was reading an interesting story the other day about a contest that happens every year in Zimbabwe. It's called Mr. Ugly. A Mr. Ugly contest. And there were some waves caused in this last contest because the guy that has been crowned the champion since 2012 was upset. There was a new champion, a guy by the name of Misson Sire. That's him. This guy won the Mr. Ugly contest in Zimbabwe, and many people were upset. The reigning champion since 2012 was Miss Vanu, uh, I believe his name was Miss Vanu, if I don't pronounce this, uh, I butcher this, William Miss Vanu. Miss Sire was the other guy. William Miss Vanu claimed that this gentleman, Sire, didn't deserve the title because he removed teeth, and he had to make facial expressions in order to win. Masvanu said, I'm naturally ugly. This guy has to do things in order to be ugly. It's not fair. 
And contestants were, were arguing, they were bickering, they were fighting over who should be the champion. Some supporters for the reigning champion stepped up. One of them said, do we have to lose our teeth to win? This is cheating. And while no one was injured, there was a great deal of shoving and pushing. And Misson Sire told reporters they should just accept that I am uglier than them. One judge stated it like this. He said, Sire made tremendous effort to enhance his ugliness by pulling facial stunts. Masvanu thought he is so ugly that he didn't need to try hard, and that cost him. Very strange, isn't it? Until you consider that there are many people in our culture who are competing to be ugly. Have you noticed that? There are many people in our culture who want to bring attention to their ugliness and the things that they do that are ugly. We see it all the time with actors and athletes who, who flaunt you know, their immoral and reckless lifestyle. We see it with individuals who brag about a sexual conquest. We see it with people who make a joke out of their immoral behavior. We see it pushed by our culture as it seeks to push God out of the equation. It's the glorification of sin and the absence of shame. And it reminds me of what the prophet Jeremiah once stated. He said, we, were they ashamed because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know how to blush. And sadly, there are some people in our culture who don't even know how to blush. Remember the name Ryan Lochte? Does that name strike a bell with you? Ryan Lochte is a very accomplished Olympic swimmer for the United States. You might remember that this last Olympics in Brazil, he got into some trouble. But an interview recently with his mother brought out some interesting behavior by Ryan Lochte. The mother in the interview said, I want to warn all women out there not to surround my son Ryan and expect him to date them because Ryan does not have time for a relationship. He only has time for one night stands. Ryan Lochte, in an interview, stated that 70 to 75% of Olympic athletes hook up during the Olympics, and he looked forward to the partying and the hookups. This is what I'm talking about. We've got to understand shame from a productive standpoint. Shame can be a good thing. And apparently there are some who don't even know how to blush. So we have two extremes here. We have those who have been conquered by shame and those who have no shame. And both are detrimental to our spiritual health. I've heard preachers say, you know, shame is a tool of the devil. Well, not so fast. I've heard some say shame has no place in the life of a Christian. Not so fast. Because many times we point to Romans 10, 11, which reads, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to death or put to shame. But then there's scriptures like the one in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, where the same Paul who wrote Romans 10, 11 writes, I say this to your shame. Or 1 Corinthians 1, 27, where he states, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things in the world to shame the things which are strong. So we've got to have a balanced approach a logical approach to shame from a scriptural standpoint. And the scriptures tell us that shame can be well-placed or shame can be misplaced. There are some situations where shame is exactly what we should feel. And there are some situations in which shame is misplaced. Let me give you an example. Mark 8, 38 reads, For whoever is ashamed of me... In my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
The world around us looks at the teachings of Jesus and says, yeah, that's funny. They mock and they ridicule. Jesus says, love your enemies, and the world scoffs. Jesus says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and the world laughs hysterically. Jesus says, you know, one, one man, one woman for life, and the world mocks and ridicules. Because the words of Jesus are God-honoring, we must always stand with God's word. We must always stand where Jesus stands, and we should never be ashamed of that, no matter how the world looks at us. It would be misplaced shame to say, I am ashamed of something that honors God. We should never be ashamed of anything that honors God. Another example would be Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. The gospel magnifies God and Jesus and it humbles man, right? It has the power to save. May we never be ashamed to share the gospel with people who so desperately need it. For Paul, preaching the gospel often brought mocking and ridicule and persecution, but he didn't care. He wasn't ashamed because he knew that what he was standing for was honoring God. Therefore, it didn't matter if anyone else had a problem with it. And so should it be with us. We stand firmly convicted and bold for the things that honor God, no matter how the world reacts to it. In short, misplaced shame is feeling shame for something that honors God. We could include in that feelings of shame from past sins that we have been forgiven of. That would be misplaced shame. When shame paralyzes us and keeps us from moving forward in our faith, then that could be classified as misplaced shame. However, as I've already alluded to, shame can be a good thing. There is a sense where shame can be productive. Notice some pieces of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. Ezekiel 43, 10, As for you, son of man, describe the temple to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them measure the plan. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person, and do not associate with them, so that he will be put to shame. The biblical criterion for well-placed shame says you should feel shame for having a hand in anything that dishonors God. Shame is a prerequisite to repentance. Sin is always, is always a proper cause to feel shame. Sin should always cause us to feel shame and thus to motivate us to do something about that shame. Like Peter, like David, like the prodigal son, and like so many others in Scripture, we must be ashamed before we can be restored. And for those outside of Christ, it is only when they feel excessive shame and guilt that hopefully they will be spurned to do something about it. Again, notice what Paul writes this time in 2 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 8. He says, for though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the, that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while, I now rejoice. Not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul says, I'm glad you felt bad. I'm glad you felt sorrow. Because it led to something productive. 
If you have a sin problem, if you're feeling shame and guilt, then fix it. Fix it by going to God and seeking forgiveness and restoration. Paul says shame can be a really good thing if it leads to that. It can be well-placed. Shame should elicit a response. It shouldn't be avoided at all costs. Because your shame may be telling you something. It may be very well-placed. And it should be the catalyst for doing something about your sin. But let's say you do all that. Let's say that you, you seek God and you seek forgiveness. You've done all that and still you hurt. You're burdened still by guilt and shame. Guilt we'll talk about next week. You still feel the weight of shame in your life and you say, I don't know what to do. I know God has forgiven me, and it, but I don't feel forgiven. And what's the one piece of advice that the Christians seem to always be ready to give you? Well, you know, you just got to learn to forgive yourself. I'm here to tell you this morning that that's well-meaning and it's sincere, but it's really not good advice. It's not your duty or obligation to forgive yourself. That's not your problem. Instead of worrying about forgiving yourself, worry about what God has forgiven you of. You see, you can't really forgive yourself anyway. It's one of those statements that we make a lot. You know, there's a lot of statements that are churchy and pious that we, we, we make a lot, but they really don't add up when you go to Scripture or when you think about them long and hard. You can't forgive yourself anyway. So that shouldn't be your main priority. You haven't sinned against yourself. You've sinned against a holy God. You didn't disobey your law. You disobeyed God's law, right? Remember the words of David in his contrite prayer. He said, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Yes, David had committed sin with Bathsheba and against her husband Uriah. But at the end of the day, the one that he truly offended and the only one that really mattered in this equation was God. Against you and you only I have sinned. David didn't need to forgive himself. He needed to seek God's forgiveness. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, he goes on to say. You're not your own savior. Therefore, you cannot offer yourself forgiveness. Here's something else. It seems like when we make forgiving ourselves the goal, we tend to minimize our sin, right? We don't do it consciously necessarily. But if we're going to get past our guilt and our shame we tend to think that the way to do that is just to make light of our offenses towards God. You know, there are other people who've done a lot worse than I have. A lot of people do what I've done. He who has no sin, let him throw the first stone, right? We have to justify. We have to, you know, lessen the egregiousness of our sin when at the end of the day, as I said before, shame can be a good thing. You should feel shame for your sin. You have offended a holy God. However, once you've fixed it, you've fixed it. And we move forward in forgiveness, right? The other problem here is that we tend to lessen the gospel as well. We minimize the message of the gospel. If you can forgive yourself, why do you need Jesus? But see, you're not your own Savior. If you were your own Savior, then you have every reason to be concerned, to be scared, to be afraid. Because, as you know, your blood can't take away your own sin. Jesus is our Savior. So instead of worrying about the magnitude of our sin, we worry about the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice, right? Your problem is not that you need to forgive yourself. 
You see, 1 John 2, 1 through 2, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Another word we're going to study. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You are not your own Savior. The problem is not that you need to forgive yourself. The problem is you need, or the, the focus needs to be on the one who has already forgiven you. Listen to what else Paul writes. Romans 4, 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. So rather than feeling shame and this overwhelming sense of, of guilt, we, we should be feeling an overwhelming sense of joy and contentment and satisfaction and relief knowing that our sin against a holy God will not be counted against us. But I've done some really bad things, you say. Someone might say, how could God ever forgive me? You have to understand how atonement works. We've got to stop putting the emphasis on the magnitude of our sin and start emphasizing the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice. We tend to think that if our sin is minor enough that God will forgive us. But our forgiveness is not based on the size of our sin. Our forgiveness is based on the enormity of God's grace. Still others say, but I just don't feel forgiven. And to that I would say, don't trust your feelings. Forget about your feelings. Your feelings can, or your conscience as we call it sometime, you know, they can be a good, a good indicator of some things. They can be a good uh, a stoplight. You know, they're, a, they're, they're a terrible green light. And sometimes we listen too much to our feelings. Don't trust your feelings here if you don't feel forgiven. If you've been forgiven and don't feel forgiven, don't trust your feelings. Forgiveness is experienced by taking God in his word, not trusting your feelings. If God says that you are forgiven, then you're forgiven. Because anything that God says, you can take to the bank. Where is your confidence? Is it in you? Is it in your feelings? Or is it in God and Jesus? Is it in the sacrifice? You know, the difference between well-placed shame and misplaced shame is not how they affect us, but how they affect God. Well-placed shame, as we often refer to as godly sorrow, godly sorrow moves one to repentance, which, which pleases God greatly. But misplaced shame says, I, I know God has forgiven me, I know his, He sent His Son to die for me, but I, I just don't feel it. What are we saying? We're saying, I don't trust Him. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but isn't that in essence what we're saying? I don't trust the sacrifice. I don't trust that he truly will forgive me. Plus, where in the Bible does it say that you have to forgive yourself? Go ahead, book, chapter, and verse, find it. Because it's not there. The problem is not that you need to forgive yourself. The problem is you need to trust in the one who has forgiven you. I want to close this morning with another Quick game of shame or no shame, okay? Here's some more statements that I want to put up here. Shame or no shame, I have sin in my life. Sometimes I intentionally avoid talking to others about Jesus. Shame or no shame? I have a hard time forgiving myself. You feel shame associated with that? I don't always want what God wants. Shame or no shame? I need help. Are you weighed down by shame this morning? Is it getting the best of you? In your life, is the sacrifice winning or is shame 
If you need help, then do something about it this morning. Seek the prayers of this church family. If you need to be immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins so you can begin a daily walk with God, then do that. Whatever shame is doing to you in your life, respond correctly this morning. Let us help you. We are a church of exits. Let us help you. Come now as we stand and as we sing.